Hello, welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. My name is Kelly J. Got a nice international edition today. I'm joined by Roe Edge uh, from New Zealand, Dr. Linda Blade from Canada. Roe is a part of Save Women's Sport Australasia, which is uh, part of the initiative started off by Beth Seltzer in the USA. Um, it's an international coalition of women's organizations, athletes and supporters of women in sport who assert that male athletes should not compete in female sports. Um, <laughs> it's amazing that we're having to have these conversations, isn't it? Um, Dr. Linda Blade is a sports performance professional with a PhD in kinesiology from Simon Fraser University in Canada. She's a track and field coach and the current president of the Athletics Alberta. Uh, She's worked for 25 years as a sports performance professional coach in Edmonton, uh, teaching fundamental biomotor skills to athletes for over 15 years. Um, Linda's entire life experience has prepared her for this role. She's playing street soccer as a small child, then becoming the Bolivian champion in track and field as a 15-year-old, secured an NCAA title nine scholarship and winning all american honors whilst at university of maryland uh, later she became the canadian champion uh, competing internationally with team canada in the heptathlon uh, and she now has a phd um, in kinesiology with a speciality in studying physical anthropology and sexual dimorphism in, dimorphism in growing children we're going to talk about the world rugby decision and we're going to explore some of the other themes and assaults on women and women's sports enjoy as always don't forget to like share and subscribe whilst you enjoy the slideshow thank you okay so good evening good afternoon good morning wherever you are um i am talking to roe edge uh who's in new zealand and linda blade in Canada uh, and we're going to have a little response to what happened with the rugby, the world rugby, uh, the announcements, the, the general idea of what is going on in sport um, and uh, just how swiftly each country is attacking women's rights. <laughs> so um, yeah. good afternoon Linda is it? Yes it is you've got that right it's about uh, 2 p.m or so yeah that's good on a Sunday. Thanksgiving, Great. Canadian Thanksgiving is tomorrow, but a lot of people are celebrating today. So I'm grateful. Oh, nice. So happy Thanksgiving yeah. for tomorrow. Thank you. And uh, Ro, nice early in the morning for you. Oh, not too early, 9am. It's quite civil, really. Uh, uh, <laughs> it, and what day is it? It's Monday. Oh, so it's we're ahead of day. everyone else. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, you're uh, brilliant. Right. Um, I'm going to come straight to you, Linda, for your response. Kay to uh, World Rugby basically saying that when it comes to elite sports, international sports, they are going to stop men uh, from playing in women's teams. Uh, just a, an incredible, how incredible. How did you feel? Well, I was elated. Um, I felt it was a, a huge moment, celebratory moment uh, for women's sports, um, mostly because um, for the last two years, Kelly J, I've been actually dealing with the, the not depression, but sort of like the horrif horrifying prospect that the, you know, I found out that the IOC was the International Olympic Committee had established a policy, unbeknownst to all, us, in uh, 2015 that said that males could self identify into female sports. And there was just no way that there was ever going to be fair, no matter which way they did it, whether they say the guys, you know, the males have to decrease their hormones for a year or whatever. There is just simply, it's like saying, I'm going to change a three-story building into a two-story building by changing the plumbing. It just, it doesn't work. And so I think the IOC was really counting on all sports to have solidarity and not have any courage to break from this sort of block position. And so when I heard about the um, 
consultation World Rugby was undertaking in February of this year, in 2020, and I knew that there were advocates on our side at the table, um, I was really keeping my fingers crossed and so worried that the local rugby unions would talk World Rugby down from the position that was the most obvious position, science says, you know, if you're going to let males in female sports, the chances of injuries going up 30 to 50 percent, mm. you know that's going to be a terrible problem. So the fact that World Rugby would actually state, even if it's only limited, I know we're going to get into this, but even if it's only limited to the elite females, uh, the fact that they would stick to this position to say, look, absolutely not. At world levels, males do not compete with females. It is at least, Kelly J, at least an acknowledgement of biological reality. And it's the first, as I said the other day to you, it's the first crack in the dam. It's like somebody took a sledgehammer to the, the dam. It's the first crack in the dam of I, IOC solidarity on this issue. Uh, Ro, do you share Linda's um, yeah, hope? Yeah, I do. I do, actually. You know, like, I think they've got to be really commended for sticking to this policy. More crucially, mm -hmm. because the, they had so much pressure from activists and lobbyists mm -hmm. who would just have them totally disregard women's safety. And also, too, you know, when we started seeing the rugby unions come out opposed to it, first off Canada, then Australia, and then New Zealand, and South Africa, and England, and Ireland, and Wales, it's, you know, to actually maintain their course and say, no, we cannot put women at risk then, you know, I actually do commend them for them. But I think, you know, female rugby players all around the world now must be looking to their own national rugby organisations for answers as to why if world rugby is going to protect their professional players, why aren't the national unions protecting mm -hmm. their players? Mm -hmm. The risk is exactly the same. Do they not deserve the same health and safety and the same fairness? And especially, I think my frustration is because rugby has had such a focus for the last probably 10 or so years on injury prevention. It's been like their number one focus. They've changed the rules of rugby to make, you know, injury risk, you know, less able to happen. And yet with females rugby, it seems like they've just opened the door and they don't care. And so, yeah, I totally commend World Rugby. I do agree with Linda that I think this is like a chip in the iceberg and, it, and hopefully it's that start of things starting mm -hmm. to, you know, we're going to get over that bloody mountain of this mm -hmm. these ridiculous policies yeah. coming out and for people to really start questioning them. Yeah. I mean, unlike um, Canada, sorry to say, Linda, but uh, New Zealand is famed for your incredible rugby team. You know, the, the eyes, whenever New Zealand play, the eyes of the world watches. Every, anybody that's got an interest in rugby will tune into yeah. an All Blacks game. And we had one yesterday. <laughs> yes, well, you I don't saw exactly it. have you don't exactly have small players, do you? So yeah. the prospect of a hulking great big guy uh, playing against women in New Zealand, I, I think, is just it's quite astounding and really dishonest of your. Mm -hmm. So, uh, are men playing in women's rugby in New Zealand? I'm not aware of any. We haven't heard that yet. And I think the New Zealand Rugby Union stance with rejecting it was that, you know, there's probably so few, it doesn't really matter. But what they've done is they've actually launched, they managed to get funding through Sport New Zealand. So similar to Sport Australia, where they're actually now going through and developing trans inclusion policies for eight different sports. And so they're going out for consultation. And so the consultation, like we're involved with it because I've been involved with the NZRU since the whole World Rugby draft transgender guidelines came into, into play. We're, we're involved with that process. But as I understand it so far, they are only consulting with rugby boards and employees of rugby unions. And I know some other groups but not, I haven't heard if they've actually, they're actually going to, you know, actually consult with female players at all. Interestingly, like speaking to the NZRU, they, I did ask, have you talked, like our Black Ferns, like we always talk about the All Blacks. We're actually really proud of our Black Ferns too. They are incredible athletes as well. And they were consulted with before NZRU actually rejected the guidelines and they wanted New Zealand rugby to adopt them. Hmm. So that was their feedback. But <laughs> NZRU's comment to me was that they didn't feel they understood the research well enough. Oh, disgusting. So, 
Yeah, so it's like, I guess my only hope is now we've got a big campaign now on, obviously we, we want to get in touch with all these rugby unions and boards, their employees, and actually send them World Rugby's research because lovely Ross Tucker has laid it out in such a beautiful way, like in the, in the you know, the flyer that he sent out with their decision that's available on the um, World Rugby website. So we want to send them that information and make sure that they do have it so that when they're giving their feedback, at least they're doing it with some idea of the risks in play. Mm. Mm. It looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? It's just Look like for it, everybody on the World Rugby website. All the, all the yeah. stats are there. Yeah, really easy to read format, nice and simple to understand. Yeah, I mean, I I have this frustration that when we're because I don't play sport, but I assume that the part of playing an all female sport, uh, Linda, is that it's not just about how well you play. It's not just about whether your opponents, whether you win or lose. It's a camaraderie. It's the female only space. It's the self esteem. It's the body image, and it's all those other things that come with it that a male in the space completely obliterates. Um, mm. From a grassroots point of view and from your sort of level of who you teach and train and mentor, yeah. um, mm. what do you think the impact will be on girls if they do have boys or women having men in, in their sports? Uh, one word or one phrase. It's called learned helplessness. This is an actual phenomenon. If, if you put human beings in experimentally in situations where they're constantly under stress and frustrated and they see everything's unfair, um, they will learn helplessness in the sense that they will be unable to even take advantage of future opportunities that they see where they could take advantage of, but they'll feel like they have no control. And one of the things that happens psychologically is if you go through this, and I think little girls are going to be gaslighted into that state uh, by having boys in their sports. Um, it actually negates all the advantages, the psychological, the character advantages that are acquired in sport um, in the sense that we know there's just so much data out there that if um, little girls and teenagers and um, females all throughout life, if they can engage in sport, they learn discipline, they learn self-control, they learn to be assertive, they learn to fight, they learn how to lose properly, they learn how to say, I didn't win this time, I'm gonna win the next time. They, you know, something like unbelievable number, 95% or something of C-suite um, executives, females who have become, you know, CEOs of major international, transnational corporations, uh, multinationals, um, they ha all have had sports in their background. There's, that's just not a fluke. I mean, you learn how to be assertive and, and powerful as a woman. You learn how to play the game and be tough. And you know what? That is part of just the beauty of uh, having females and girls in their own sports divisions. They'll learn. I mean, I have to say, I am so grateful, forever grateful to Title IX, for example, that I was able to go as a Canadian athlete I was recruited to Title IX, uh, a scholarship in the States. And, um, you know, just the experience of having to compete at a higher level and having to have the team depend on you. And, and just, just so many things like learning how to be with people and compete and, and actually have a, be a proper teammate and actually concede some times for the other person on your team. I mean, there are just so many things that women learn through sport as far as their character development. And that's always the advantages we, we, you know, we put out there and say, this is one of the great things about sports. And if you allow males into female sports, you've not only neutralized that advantage, you've actually taught them the opposite of empowerment. You've actually taught them learned helplessness. It's yeah. gonna devastate women's sports yeah. in ways that people don't even understand. Yeah, it will stop. I guess one of the things I'm really fearful of is it will stop people even trying out for sport. Yes, yeah, they won't we try. Have, 
we had a really good, I mean, with New Zealand and rugby, you know, we already have parents who are worried about letting their boys play rugby. Mm. Imagine if your daughter wants to play rugby and potentially has to play against a biological male, parents will just go, there is no way you're playing that sport. It's way too dangerous. And we had a really good example over here. We had um, a woman's downhill mountain biker, Shania Rawson. Like, I think she was number two in the world. And she was basically winning all the downhill events in New Zealand. There was a boy who transitioned to a female at the end of one year, competed as a male averagely for that year, and then at the end of that year transitioned, the beginning of the next year started competing in women's downhill and beat the girls by 30 seconds, which is huge in women's downhill. Yeah. When it came to the nationals that year, only five girls turned up to compete mm -hmm. because the rest of them thought, what's the point? Yeah, and exactly. I mean, danger is that when you take away the chance to actually be the best and to dream about being the best, you take away the pathways, you take away their representative positions, and you take away their podium positions. And it's yeah, it's just so unfair. It's devastating. Yeah. Um, Ro, I I I'm going to talk about Claire um, Chandler. Is it who's down in um, Australia? Yeah. Um, who's doing some. Amazing. really good brave yeah on her own work her because own. nobody <laughs> nobody else is saying anything and i watched the exchange where she was talking to i think it was australian rugby and the guy was just sort of pretending that he didn't really know uh oh, about policies that was, that was the head of sport australia yes didn't know about their female policies. Like, you know, why would why do you think it's important for females to be involved in sport? Oh, I don't know. Like, seriously, <laughs> so bizarre. Yeah. But um, why it? Uh, and I'm guessing you don't have any politicians uh, who are speaking up in New Zealand. How? How? Why? Why not? Oh, everyone is so scared of the activists. You know, we have gone to see a couple of politicians about this because our election is this coming weekend and voting is now. And so we really tried to, you know, mark out who, who would be supportive. And it was a real struggle to find anyone. They've all drunk the Kool-Aid. They're all nervous about, I think because of the homosexual reform that went through those that spoke up against it now just look ridiculous. Mm. And so they're all thinking they don't want to be in that situation again and so they're they're just allowing it but you speak to them on the quiet and they're like oh look I totally support this but I'm too scared to speak about it it's the whole cancel culture it's our whole media our media over here are just pro-trans everything they, they will will not discuss the other side of the debate at all we put out press releases and hardly anyone mm. takes them up they're just mm. not interested and it's incredibly frustrating one of the first stories I heard coming out of New Zealand, and this must have been three or four years ago, was a girl in a changing room who complained about a boy in her changing room. I think she might have even got expelled or suspended. Um, and that was in a, a New Zealand school. So I was aware it was quite bad. But I just, you sort of have this image that everyone's got um, rugby in their blood in New Zealand. So that would just... That would be protected, but uh, clearly yeah. not. You ask, you ask the general public, and everyone was interesting because after the World Rugby Guidelines came out, a couple of different um, newspapers published them online. And looking at the comments online, everyone was fully supportive of World Rugby's decision. I think I only mm -hmm. saw one trans activist basically come on there and tell us we're all transphobic and bigots and turfs, mm. you know. But everybody was supportive. So, you know, the, it's, it's the, the liberal elite view that they seem mm. to think that everybody should hold their view. And, you know, mm. our Prime Minister is a prime example of that. She said on a national debate, on a television debate against the opposition leader last week, that everyone should be able to use the toilets that they feel comfortable in. You know, and I presume that that means the changing room they feel comfortable in and whatever else they feel comfortable in. But they've committed to pushing through gender self-ID laws here when they're re-elected. So, you know, we're in for a battle. You, we, we'll be following what you amazing women in the UK have done. But yeah, we're mm. kind of like five years behind you, really, in our fight. Yeah. It's mm. like our education guidelines have just been introduced. New education guidelines, which are like the guidelines you guys have just withdrawn in the UK. <laughs> Same in Canada. <laughs> yeah, well, let's like, hope that, that at least 
that least gives the language that there is a country that has already done it, that, that, that it can be removed and undone mm. and untangled. Um, mm. Just w one more thing about um, the sport stuff, and it's just gone out of my head. Can't remember. I'm going to come to can you. Can I say something while you're, can I say something while you're yeah. thinking? Yeah, yeah. Um, because one of the things that kind of irks me a little about the world rugby situation is that um, they spoke and they, they were, you know, obviously very strong and courageous with respect to their own jurisdiction, which is world level players. Um, they, they didn't even have to Kelly J they did not even have to really make a comment about community sport or about national level sport because that's not their jurisdiction anyway. What they should have just done is said, no men and women's sport internationally, and then just left it at that. Mm -hmm. And then made the unions come back at them with stuff. Because um, what, uh, what happens in sport, at least in track and field athletics, which is my main, my main endeavor, um, although I coach athletes in 15 different sports because everybody needs speed, power, jumps, everything, whether you're a figure skater or a hockey player. But so I know all the different sports, but my main sport is obviously track and field athletics. And if you think about three levels, I'm looking at the bookshelf behind me. So the top shelf uh, is like maybe the world level. And then the middle shelf is the national federation or rugby union level. And then the bottom shelf would be like your community level, right? Um, if the top shelf, which is world rugby is telling the second shelf, you know, you're free to do what you want, make your own policies. I mean, they didn't have to say that. They just did that mm -hmm. to sort of throw the dog a bone or something. I don't know. They, they did it just to sort of, you know, just try to act like they're, they also are listening to their unions. But then, but what I love about this, on the other hand, is then what's to stop the third level saying to the second level, first level gave you the option. As a third level, we'll have our own options in making our own rules despite your rule because we're going to agree with the top level and which is what sense, you guys have done isn't it linda that's what i have done in yeah. alberta yeah yeah because, it's, but yeah but there will be i think uh, there's two things there's there's what will it take so if there is a club um mm -hmm. that now like you said the world rugby could have easily said look we've looked at the evidence we mm. think it's dangerous for women who are playing our sport at an international and elite level, we think it's dangerous for our players to have mm -hmm. men um, playing in, in women's rugby or trans women or whatever euphemism they want to call these men. Um, mm -hmm. I think that would have been an appropriate thing to do. But these Just sort of finish. weird caveats basically mm -hmm. mean that they are now not responsible. So if there are injuries um, and I, I assume that that for some people is what it will take some serious yeah. injury, if not death. It's sad. Um, yep. No, it's sad. So I, I think they were, I think they were gutless. I thought it was shameful <laughs> and mm. I thought they were gutless. And I don't like the idea that we have to talk about muscle, muscle fiber, bone density and all that uh, hormones um, I don't see why we have to go down that road in order to mm. prove what we all know is that men are fitter, stronger, bigger than women and yeah, can it's hurt us. Yeah, yeah, it's totally we ridiculous. That. We're having to prove that they are when everybody knows they are. Really, what they should be proving is they aren't to get in That's our sport. Right. You know, mm. it's, mm. yeah. It's so yeah, the onus on them, they're knocking on the door to try to come into our house. The onus should be on them to explain how they, how yeah, they why deserve they to come in. Yeah. It's only explainable. I keep coming back to this all the time. All of this only makes sense if we accept that actually women's voices, much like in Saudi Arabia, count for half. Yep. So we basically need nearly every woman on the planet to stand up and say no, just to allow mm. some of us to have the right to, to assert a boundary and have it respected. It's right, just, yeah. it's you know, frustrating. Um, 
yeah um how so you stick to your um moral code when it comes to these things linda do you mm -hmm. have anyone oppose oppose your rules of of not allowing boys to play in girls sports they may i mean they may come at us and say well your policy is bigoted we've had a very clear policy in fact i thought it was really important uh, ethics alberta which is the provincial like state association uh state level for our sport provincial level um and we decided right away as soon as we became aware of this whole um self-id issue um that the sooner we put in a policy of our own the better because let's say we wait till some boys are competing with the girls and then we put in a new policy it's kind of like they're feeling targeted or bullied by us but if we actually say up front no if you were born male you will always compete with the males if you're born female you will compete with the females and you have an option you can go up or now because it's an absence of competitive advantage you can go with you can go in the boys race or the girls race but if you're a, a girl and you're taking testosterone supplementation then you're doping and you're kind of it's kind of like cheating so then you would have to go either with the boys or you'd have to remove yourself from the sport so it's very simple like these are very simple guidelines and mm -hmm. we've actually just said that in our policies you know and there may come a time where somebody challenges us um i i do i worry about that but on the other hand we have the canadian charter of rights and freedoms that also stipulates that you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex and if you are going to make women have a male in their sport or if you have forced girls to compete with a boy that is discrimination on the basis mm -hmm. of sex and if they want to have a charter challenge that may bring this to a head much quicker so i you know i we the only thing i'm saying is those of us who feel strongly about this we just need to stand our ground and then make them prove their case because yeah if we're constantly waiting for them to make the case and then we have to prove why that's so unfair then that puts us in a you know in 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 a situation where we have to do a lot more work make them do the work and then the other thing is i did want to make the point about your <laughs> about the voices of women not having not being as effective as the voices voices of men and i'll give you a really good example about that in that the ioc level international olympic committee it took okay the first olympics where females were allowed to participate in the modern olympics was 1900 and they did not allow women to run the marathon till 1984. So it took 84 years. Mm. It took 84 years for women to be allowed to run a marathon, let's say. But then when a male goes into the medical commission, Joanna Harper, who's a male, you know, transgender, two meetings, two or three meetings, and they change the policy. Like, it is just freaking unbelievable because it takes us anytime women want something in sport would take meetings and years and lobbying and money and the, whatever one one gentleman shows up who now is identifying as female or whatever he gets in there oh how brave this person is and they right away change the policy you know, on really like, crappy research as well it's like seriously <laughs> it it, it blow that amongst anything like that yeah. that makes me almost more angry kelly j than almost anything else the fact that they're ushered in on a red red carpet and we have to beg and plead for every little advancement we make mm. it's just, just we're, we're whining and we're whining and we're moaning and we're nagging yep we're not yeah, exactly you no know, we're not brave we're not uh, asserting our rights mm. um ro mm. you mentioned there are there are eight sporting there's eight sports at risk um do you have you don't have self id in new zealand yet do you um no but it is ready to be pushed through parliament so what this government did is they we were making some changes to our birth deaths and marriages act updating the act because it was pretty old and after the second reading, the, um, a Labour and Green MP 
kind of like just slotted in the gender self ID, like it was just an administrative thing, nothing mm. major, but it meant that there was no consultation with the public. The opportunity to consult was gone. Luckily we had, we've got a MMP style government. So we had a conservative person that was leading that select committee and she saw it and thought, no, this isn't right. And so she got crown law advice that said it actually breached human rights. So it was, she paused it, but she was really frustrated because it paused the whole bill. So all the stuff that actually needed to be updated has been paused as well. So, you know, we were hoping that maybe it would just get thrown out, but no, both Labour and the Greens have committed that if they're re-elected, they will push it through. And we will then have gender self-ID on birth certificates, on driver's licences, on passports it's the same method oh though right God. it's the same method in your countries in my country in australia in america it's the same covert slotting in so in america they're doing this build of language where um where sex used to be they might put gender or where it used to be a sex division or whatever they'll just slip in this language so eventually there is a tipping point where the word sex and gender are sort of interchangeable, even in law. Um, and it's real, it's a proper strategy that has happened yeah. throughout the, so what, throughout the so globe. What they, so what they did here, because they couldn't get it done through legislation, they went through the State Services Commission here and they changed the wording in everything. And so now even the, our Ministry of Women, the definition of woman changed to anyone who identifies as a woman. No consultation with anybody at all. Do you all. want a that billboard? Can I give you a billboard? It <laughs> <laughs> is so frustrating. Like, and so they've done it all by stealth. So then when the gender self-ID thing comes back up in front of parliament, they're going to go, well, look, you know, it's implemented all through all these government departments now. It just makes sense. Yeah, yeah, so that yeah. gradual creep, it just is so frustrating. And no one, the public are totally unaware. So even, even if the sporting bodies said that only women you don't really have the word woman meaning in in your law anyway so what would be the i don't even know in this country maybe you know what uh linda um if we if that sporting body says that females but someone's got a grc mm. um and has taken the required suppressants or whatever um, is there any way that someone born male can play in elite women's rugby in, in this country? Or is it, are we they talking in, in truthful, straightforward language? Well, based on Canada, Rugby Canada's response to world rugby, apparently Canada is going to allow males into women's rugby. I mean, they've said they're not going to abide by world rugby. Um, and it's, it's a catastrophe, but I will also say, those are brave words now, but wait till a couple, again, it's sad that we have to wait for this, but wait till a couple of very serious injuries or death happen. Um, and if those things go into litigation, the only, it's very simple at that point. The only thing, if I were a lawyer or whatever on the side of the women, all I would say is you knew better world Canada, rugby Canada, you knew better. Look at what world rugby said. Uh, you allow males into female sports, you're going to increase injuries by 30 to 50%. You knew that would happen, so you are liable. And it, it's, it's going to take a few of those cases, I'm sure, and it's too bad because no woman should have to pay that price for a policy to be reconsidered. But mm -hmm. it looks like if that's the route Rugby Canada is going to take, then it's only a matter of time mm -hmm. that somebody's going to get hurt. And now the the payouts and the compensation is going to be huge. I don't know how they're going to not pay that because mm. that's the one advantage of having world rugby establish a standard because then it allows everybody else below to argue the point that they know better. Yeah. And well, I think we've Canada and Australia and probably in the UK too, you can actually litigate if you get injured in yeah. New Zealand, we can't. We have an accident corporate, like ACC, which is the Accident Compensation Corporation, which means if anyone's injured in sport or in an accident or whatever, there's a payout. You can't actually take anyone to court. So if there's an injury in rugby, it probably won't even be heard about because they won't be able to take it to court. 
That's so, so weird. I mean, yeah, it's, so, so we are targeting the ACC with the World Rugby Research to make sure that they're aware of it so they can try and hold New Zealand rugby to account on it as well. Because I, there's, ultimately they'll be paying out. Well, the, the argument was for, and I saw some of the, um, some of the way the argument was presented. And one of the ways that, that we, keep, we keep presenting this argument, uh, talking about puberty, and then what you do is two things. You can be accused of then um, forcing children into transition because actually if you say puberty is the thing that makes a difference, then um, that's a case for not going through puberty. Uh, but also that discounts the fact that males are males, are males, are males, are males. Yep. Yeah. That's the, male the argument. That's in the womb. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's uh, the muscle memory, all of the, mm. we can, we can talk, I'm sure you can probably do it better than me in these convoluted, long explanations about the difference between the male and female anatomy. And mm. it also, it also almost legitimizes this notion that, that they might not be very different. Yeah, I yeah, mean, which is yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, the Y chromosome and the SRY gene make all the difference in the world. And it starts from conception oh, because, yeah, I mean, the very yeah. fact that <laughs> if nothing was happening in the womb and girls and boys would be the same until puberty, why would a boy be born with a penis and a girl with a vagina? I mean, it obviously something happened in the nine months, even preceding emergence into the world. So there... The thing is, I think, Kelly J, what's happening, what's happening here, it's actually a war. There's this um, ideology that's at war with biology in general, because when you offer, there's plenty of evidence, let's put it this way. In my PhD studies, um, I was in an area called oxology, A AUX, which is growth and development of children, and it, with respect to uh, the physical anatomy and the proportions of the body and all of that. So basically, um, physical anthropology as opposed to social anthropology. So right. the, the physical anthropology, ha there's a mountain of data. You go back to, I've even said Leonardo da Vinci was studying anatomy to look at the difference when he was painting. And we have had study after study for centuries on the differences between males and female bodies. And, and of course, in the recent times, uh, in the area of physical anthropology, you know, we know there's so many variables, uh, up to 6,000 variables uh, that you could measure that, are diff that show differences in biology between males and females, which is, of course, sexual dimorphism. But it seems like because of whether it was postmodernism, I don't know what it was, but something happened about 30, 20 years ago, probably more 30 or 40 years ago in universities, whereby somehow the, the social anthropological, like the sociology somehow has this cachet about it. And somehow the biological sciences are way down here and now the sociological sciences are up here. So I, I almost think it's, it's, it's a deeper struggle between reality-based measurements of the physical world versus the ideological you know studies and arguments and proposals and theories and philosophies and mm. when you come to the table with physical anthropology on the one side social anthropology on the other side and they're completely in bear in in opposition in the sports issue social anthropology wins every time it seems like so they can argue their human rights they can argue and yet sport is contested on the basis of biology and physic, physical reality. Um, the fact that our leaders in sport, in the world sport and all of these organizations would choose to profile a sociological argument above a physical argument is what is most remarkable to me. Mm. It's just absolutely nuts. Um, Ro, you mentioned eight sports. What do, can you, off the top of your head, do you know the other sporting bodies oh, that gosh, are involved? I think there's um, Handball Australia, AFL Australia. I mean, they only created a women's division of AFL a few years ago in Australia. That's Aussie football. Um, gosh, I'm just trying to think, obviously. And that's quite team. hard going, right? That's the one yeah. that Hannah Mousy or whoever he was playing yeah. in. That, yeah. <laughs> that, that 
massive man <laughs> against those. Um, I know you see that footage when he's playing those Muslim women, and it's just yeah. it's appalling. Yeah, it's well, terrible. It's just a joke. Yeah, yeah. so I we've find got it, you're... sports here too that they're developing these inclusion policies for. It's just it's just a total takeover, and while they've got momentum, they're just rolling with it. Mm. What strikes me is um, your prime minister when that absolutely terrible thing happened uh, with the shooting in the mosque, then put mm. a hijab on, and I just thought, has she ever really thought about what that? represents because those women that wear the hijab now can't guarantee of going in a toilet if they're feeling uncomfortable and adjust their hijab just in case there's now a man in the toilet so it totally goes against you know she really cared about that population and those particularly muslim women she'd understand that by pretending that biological sex doesn't really exist she puts them in a very vulnerable position. I just, I don't know if she's thought it through, Kelly J. Mm. I honestly don't. I, 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 I don't have any other answer for why she'd be pushing this. So it, it just, Kelly, it's so mad. Kelly J, before I went, um, before I, I had my children in the late 90s, early 2000s, I actually did, I, I served as a, um, for the World Athletics uh, coach of coaches. So I'd go over to de 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 developing countries or different countries. And the reason, one of the reasons they certified me to go and teach coaches how to coach was they needed me to go into Islamic, into Muslim countries to coach women, how to coach the girls. And so I, in 1995, I, I did a course, which was like groundbreaking. I, I, I went into Tehran and Iran I had to wear the hijab and I had to teach 30 women, the best female coaches in Iran, how to coach little girls. And it was such an eye opener in terms of the women themselves and, and how much they sort of wish they could be free, you know, uh, like just to, to be themselves and to wear what they want to wear. And they were actually, the entire time, and of course, I had to put on the hijab, otherwise I might have been in trouble or whatever, arrested. But um, when you get into the gym with just with the women, it was just amazing because when I introduced myself to them, like everybody's covered in black, and we're in this classroom with Ayatollah Khomeini on the wall, and and then we go into the, and so they were all looking down at the floor because the male head of the of the sport was introducing me. And I didn't think that, it, I thought it would be impossible to teach them because everybody's just like this, looking down. And then we went into the um, field house where it was women only territory. The men got out and we got in there. And it was just, I'll never forget it. The, the door closed behind us <clears throat> and they turned on the light <clears throat> and everything came off <laughs> and they had, they had Gap t-shirts and Lycra tights and makeup. And we were all, it was just like, everybody came to life. We had the best course ever. Everybody's so motivated. And they were really feeling embarrassed that I had to do this for them, right? In terms of cover when I'd, when I'd go out, they felt, they, they don't want to always be like that. And so when Western people act like we're just trying to sort of play their game or something. And they're looking at us like, we want to be like you, like, stop. Yeah, what are you stop. Doing? we want to be like you, what are you doing? And, um, no, it was a real eye opener. And, um, um, you know, it really changed my view of how I would approach that issue. Really. It was, yeah. and now, now I'm a, a president of, you know, a sports association here in Canada and we're trying to encourage the little girls in hijab to come into our sport, right? And we want to accommodate them. And if their parents want them to keep wearing the hijab, obviously we don't, we're not going to tell them to take it off. But the minute the boy steps onto the track in, in their sport or in their bathroom, like you're right, those girls will just have to go back home and sit there and not participate. So mm, what this is, it. yeah. So what this yeah. is, is this massive balancing of, of rights and we're profiling one small tiny group 
and their rights over everybody else's rights. Yeah. And it's quite it's disgusting. Mm. Yeah, even though by giving them that right, it gives them a massive advantage over the people that have that right. Exactly. Yeah, and it it's, just yeah, it's gone it's gone mad. The world has gone mad, and we think we're so great that oh, we're so progressive. Sometimes it is like I don't know. It it just feels like yeah, it really feels like our 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 brains have fallen out. You know, yeah. like Mag Magdalene Burns said, like it just feels like we're trying so hard to be open minded, but mm. it's taking us into directions where it's it's really damaging to our core fundamental um advantages as a culture and as a like everybody comes to us because they want to be part of this great thing and then we institute policies that then turn around and actually discourage them from participating mm. well by including these men we basically exclude loads of women that's what we do every time that we, we include these yeah. men we basically yeah. say to women that the, these men are more important than you, than all of you yeah. put together yeah. <laughs> and all of your, yeah. all of your hopes and dreams and your hard work to get to a place in sport. Um, we don't care. Uh, my, my view is that every institution, every place that falls to this nonsense is basically encouraging more children and more parents um, to put their children through this in the first place to solidify that it is a genuine concept that you can be born in the wrong body. And, and that's what happens, whether it's sport, um, whether it's over here, we've got like a hundred year old organization like the WI, the Women's Institute, they've got men uh, now and it's, it's just absolutely everywhere. Um, you mentioned before, Ro, what's happening with um, your schools. I mean, is it as bad? Is it as bad as it could be? Well, it's getting worse. It is definitely getting worse. You know, pretty much we have some high schools where they have a really big trans population in them. They have no lesbians and gays. You know, the, yeah, the conversion is, a lot, and a lot of it's happening online. The other thing that we don't have in New Zealand, like you had over in the UK, where you just had like the mermaids and the Tavistock Clinic, where kind of everyone was funneled into one kind of clinic. In New Zealand, it's just, it's all over the place. It's just deregulated completely. And so there's no way to track how bad this is getting as well. But anecdotally, we, we know that it is a growing, growing issue, and especially for young women, just as you found in the, in the UK, a growing issue. For young women who either, whether they're lesbian or autistic, or they've been, you know, suffered sexual assault, whatever, just choosing to opt out of going through puberty to become a woman because it's just so difficult. Mm. So yeah. you come at this from two, so you're obviously working with um, sports, but you've also worked for, is it New Zealand Speak Up? Women Speak, speak Up. Yeah, so yeah, Speak Up Women, sorry. And that's where Save Women Sport New Zealand started from, is, is basically, it's a spin-off from Speak Up for Women. And so Speak Up Woman is all about protecting and advancing the rights of interests of women and girls in New Zealand. But we identified as sport as being a really, really key area that we needed to focus on. And then obviously after Sport Australia and those eight key <coughs> sports that were adopted their trans inclusion policies, which by the way, were inspired by really contentious 2019 guidelines from Sport Australia. So we um, invited our Aussie sisters to come on board and that was actually through Senator Claire Chandler made the introduction, which was fantastic. And it's just sort of rolling on from there, but it's, you know, we're so close as countries and so similar in so many ways. So it just makes sense to work together to try and fight this issue. And how are you finding it? Like, are, are, are the media covering <laughs> what you do? Are they, are they, is there any outlet for your point of view? Um, in New Zealand, it's a bit of a struggle. We, we sent out a press release on Saturday morning and managed to get some comments on our major news um, radio and talkback sort of station. But in Australia, they've got a really fantastic journalist called Bernard Lane, and he did a great piece in The Australian in the weekend where he went through all of these issues and he, he just nailed it so well. But as I said to Bernard, I so wish we could clone you in New Zealand, like we need a journalist <laughs> yeah. over here willing to speak up. You, you won't get anything anti-trans in any of our mainstream media in New Zealand at all. It's really, it's very, very hard to get comment out. 
or as I like to call it, pro-women. Um, <laughs> as yeah. opposed to, pro-women. it's not even, you can't even say something decent about women anymore because that is yeah. deemed, because obviously <clears throat> the measure of everything that we do is against men. Um, mm. And I say this as someone who doesn't even identify as a feminist anymore, but um, even if we just say something about, we can't even say, I think in the UK, that, that only women get cervical cancer. Get cervical we cancer. Can't we can't even that. have cancer. No. No, but it's interesting because men can still have prostate cancer, can't they? Oh, yeah, but, yeah. No, it's people with cervixes. It's like, seriously. It's so mad. Um, and what about you, Linda? I mean, obviously, you're doing your, your proper, tangible activism, which is saying no. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> from over here, we look at Canada and we, we hear the, the most horrific mm-hmm. uh, stories. Um, yeah, is it but we bad? have a, a groundswell. I, I think it. We really are in the same sort of in the same situation as Roe because uh, in New Zealand and Australia and everybody, I mean it's the same strategy all throughout policy by stealth. You don't yeah. find out about it till later, and then it's too late, and now you're the bigot because you're trying to change the policy because somehow. You should have said something when we were making the policy, but sort of nobody knew what was happening. And then they just sneak it in. And then we're supposed to somehow just accept it automatically. And, you know, I do notice, I watch carefully because even within the Canadian population, of course, there's a lot of support for, uh, we have the Bill C-16, which is the one Jordan Peterson was, um, came to to, uh, fame about in terms of resisting the pronouns or whatever, and gender expression, gender identity. Um, I think Canadians are kind-hearted that they wanted, the intent was to not bully people, like let people identify as they want, let them express mm-hmm. how way they want. Yeah. But they didn't, I think our politicians did not listen to Megan Murphy. They didn't listen to Jordan Peterson. They didn't listen to the PDF Quebec ladies. They didn't listen to Senator Linda Frum. They just went ahead acting like, well, we just, we will believe the people who tell us this is, you know, the good thing to do. It's not bullying, but they forgot. And they, they just, I don't even think they forgot. I think they failed to realize that when you put in a law that, that basically asserts the rights of gender identity and gender expression, um, it's how it's being interpreted at the ground level that matters. I don't think when, you know, I try to put myself in the shoes of some sort of MP who, who supported the bill. And I'm sure that person didn't have in their brains that some prison warden would make a decision to put a male in a female prison or in a female cell. They didn't know. I don't think, see, the thing is that the solutions can be different than that. You could have a wing in a men's prison for the males who self-identify as women. But instead, they think, well, the law says, and then they put this man in a woman's prison who's a rapist who rapes women's prisoners. Like, that didn't have to happen like that. It's just that the bill says one thing, and then everybody panics, and they try to satisfy what they think was the intent of that bill. But the bill is very general. It doesn't say, the bill doesn't say, males must be in women's sports it just says we have to we have to provide for an expression of it well what better expression of a gender identity is if you're a male but you identify as a as a female wear a female uniform put on makeup and go in the men's race there is no better way to identify yourself than to do that yeah to me Mm. that's complying with gender expression of who you are we're not saying they can't do that. I'd love yeah. them for them to do that. I'd love to see a guy show We'd up. We'd be much more tolerant. That would be a show of uh, absolute tolerance if we accepted yeah. that men can yeah. do that and still yeah. be men. And bravo, be great. that guy. <laughs> and they do like, that in Samoa and American Samoa because they have a history, a fafalifi. Yeah. I'm probably going to say it wrong, fafalifi. Gosh, I don't yeah. know. Um, but, you know, where they accept, you know, trans people in their sport. And there was um, 
there was an American Samoan um, FIFA player, football player, played, she was, she was the first trans woman to play in a men's quarter final. Of course. FIFA. It makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah, but they've been yeah. totally... And that was celebrated. Why can't we just celebrate their identity? Yeah. Like, why, does, exactly. why do we have to, you know, make women and girl, girls pay the price? It doesn't... And, make, this, is, that's and this brings us to the crux of what the real issue is, and that is men have never been accepting of the diversity of their sex, ever. Look yeah. how long it took, you know, even rugby should be, you know, accommodating to homosexuality mm. within in rugby. It, it took forever, and I would say they still probably have an issue. But because of their lack of acceptance, it's just much easier to make this a woman's problem. But it's mm -hmm. actually a men's problem, and they need to it's be... It's a men's problem, yeah. yeah. And well, men need to also open problem, up their minds. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's always down to women to accommodate. Um, now, it's getting quite late for me. So... Yes. Um, uh, a couple of things from each of you, if you could think about it. Um, I'll start. So what I want you to do is tell people in your countries, um, and you're, you might have to do two, well, you might have to do Australia as well, um, what sort of steps they can take, um, what sort of actions and how to find you. So in the UK, um, people that watch my channel are pretty clear about the sorts of uh, people they can contact. But I always say, um, have a look at what's going on in your children's school, because as a parent, you are the most protected advocate. If your kid goes into school and tries to say no to things, then that is a far more socially sort of risky thing for them to do. But you as, your, as an advocate of your child can go in, have a chat with the school, find out what they're teaching. Mm. And the other thing you can do that's completely confidential is you can have a Zoom call or a phone conversation or go and visit your MP and make your feelings known. Obviously we're talking about sport. So if you belong to any local rugby clubs, it's absolutely essential that you go and tell them what the World Rugby, Club, World rugby has said and that you think that it would be um, foolish not to, to follow suit. So that's what I would say for the UK and I, maybe it's extendable. Um, so coming to you, Ro, what, uh, where can people find you and what are some of the things that people can be doing um, in Australia and New Zealand? So we've got a website, savewomensport.com, so they can go to there and register to get our regular newsletter. We've got a Facebook page as well, Save Women's Sport Australasia, they can find us on. But like you, I recommend get, get in touch with your local sports clubs. They're all going to be getting consulted with at the moment. Make sure your voices are heard, because if you don't speak up, this will happen. So yeah, definitely get in touch yeah, and just speak up. Speak with your, with your friends and family. Be brave enough to have this conversation because you'll be surprised most people will agree. We've got to stop, you know, basically censoring what we say if it's something that we believe in. Yeah, thank you. And you, Linda? Well, um, I have a book coming out really soon um, and uh, it's in the final stages of editing. And um, so it's, it's about uh, this whole issue in Canadian sport and beyond. So we, we include a lot of what's going on in Canada, explain it as clearly as we can. And, um, and then, uh, you know, we bring in all of these external things like the World Rugby, the IOC. And so the combination of the ruling from World Rugby and perhaps some of the information in the book I think if parents can take that information and present it to their local uh, sport communities and, and associations to better inform them that there are options other than the cut and paste being offered by the top Canadian bureaucracy of sport, which is completely taken over by the ideology. Um, if they can actually promote that at their local level, I think that's the strongest leadership because I think this is an issue is uh, you know, when we talk about the three levels of three shelves, this issue is going to be driven from the bottom level up. Um, yeah. Our leaders have shown themselves to be cowards time and again, mm -hmm. but we can build up from the bottom up. And the other thing is write your MPs and ask them also in the book. And also there's, there's a way to do this to ask that we have exemptions in the way that the UK has um, for the single sex spaces. I think we need we need to copy the legislation that the UK has that allows for single sex exemptions on certain things 
like sports um, and those kinds of things. So I think that would help. And the UK has, um, thankfully, at least somewhere in the world, we have precedent that we can look to um, to say, look, these are things maybe we can install until society kind of, you know, the pendulum swings back to the middle and we Mm. we're all able to discuss this matter properly without accusing each other of hate. Well, it's a big fight, um, but it's, uh, I, I think the, the positive of this, if there Mm -hmm. is one is that women are waking up and, you know, I'm talking to you two, uh, across continents, uh, and we are all, uh, we have all, I have quite a visceral kind of very similar response to this. And it's, Mm -hmm. um, I think the logical that, yeah, I think so. Um, so Mm -hmm. thank you both very much. Enjoy your afternoon. Enjoy your morning. And I might have an early night. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go have a glass of wine or something. Oh, unless you had a match of there last time. Well, wasn't that fun? My thanks to Linda uh, in Canada and Ro in New Zealand. Do look up their respective fights. I think it's important that we support our local movements as well as the global ones. One good thing that's come out of this fight for all of us women is that we are coming together um, from all different walks of life uh, life and uh, different parts of the globe. So, as always, don't forget to like, share and subscribe. See you next time. Ciao. Ciao.